Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Whether you're joining us in person or online, thank you for joining us for worship this Sunday morning. Well, we're going to continue our sermon series uh, called Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And the goal of this series has been for us to follow Jesus around as he moves through the book of Luke. And we've been paying attention to the things that he did and to the things that he said. And as we watch his compassionate and loving actions, as we listen to his wise and life-giving words, it is my prayer that we as followers of Jesus would have greater certainty about the things that we believe. That Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that he is the Savior of the world, and that it really is worth it to follow Jesus, no matter how hard that can be at times. The title of today's sermon is Caesar and God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 19 to 26. And today, Jesus is going to talk about something that we all dislike doing, which is paying our taxes. So let's see what Jesus has to say about paying taxes and more generally about how we as Christians ought to relate to government. So people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him. And sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They answered, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, here is the sermon outline for today. First, the context for the trap question. Second, the purpose of the trap question. Third, the answer to the trap question. And fourth, some practical applications for how Christians are to relate to government. I'm going to move quickly through the first three points, and then we're going to spend some time on the practical applications on how we as followers of Jesus are to relate to human government. So the context of the trap question. From the very beginning of the gospel, the religious leaders have been hostile toward Jesus. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, the religious leaders followed Jesus around, but they grumbled against Jesus. They criticized Jesus when he healed on the Sabbath, and they criticized him for hanging out with known sinners, and they publicly questioned and challenged the things that he said and the things that he taught. They thought that Jesus was leading the people astray and they resented his popularity among the people because the people were listening to Jesus and not to them. And starting from chapter 9, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and he began his journey to Jerusalem because it was in Jerusalem that Jesus would fulfill and accomplish his mission, which was to seek and to save the lost through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And now 
As we get to this place in Luke's gospel, we're finally in Jerusalem. Jesus is finally in Jerusalem, and this is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And here in Jerusalem, the hostility of the religious leaders against Jesus reaches its fever pitch. And from a human perspective, it would be the hostility of these religious leaders that would lead to Jesus being put to death on a cross. Now, in the first chapter, in the first part of chapter 20, the chapter that we just read, Jesus told a scathing parable that was directed against the religious leaders, and that made them so angry that they wanted to destroy Jesus. But they couldn't do anything to Jesus because, according to Luke 19, verse 48, all the people were hanging on his words. You see, Jesus was far too popular for them to try anything against Jesus, at least in public and in uh, broad daylight. So the religious leaders sought to deliver up Jesus to the authority and jurisdiction of the Roman governor so that he might get rid of Jesus for them. So they sent spies to Jesus who pretended to be sincere and friendly to Jesus. But their ulterior motive was to trap Jesus into saying something that would get him into political trouble with the Roman government. So that's the context for this trap question. Next, let's consider the purpose of this trap question. So the religious leaders, they sent spies, and these spies came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So these spies begin by flattering Jesus. Flattery is what I'm going to call the reverse mirror image of gossip. What is gossip? Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. And these spies came with flattery. What they said about Jesus was true, but they didn't believe a word of it or, or mean a word of it. And then they asked Jesus their trap question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, obviously, it was lawful in the sense that it was in accordance with the laws of Rome. And at this time, Israel had been conquered by Rome, and they were living under the rule and the government of the Roman Empire. But they hated it, and they wanted to be liberated and freed from the rules and the government of Rome. Now, all Jews knew that they were required to submit to the law of God. So the question that these spies were asking Jesus was really this. Was it lawful for a Jew who was under the law of God to pay this tax when the law of God did not command it? Was a Jew who was required to obey the law of God also required to obey the laws of Rome? That was the heart of their question. Now, the tribute to Caesar uh, that the spies were talking about was a Roman law that required every Jewish citizen to pay, what the, uh, to pay what is known as an imperial Roman poll tax. And it was the price that they had to pay for the privilege of simply living and working in the Roman Empire. Basically, the Jews had to pay this tax to live in their own land because their own land was under the domination and rule of the Roman government. And this particular tax, of all the Roman taxes, was the most hated by the Jews. In the past, this tribute to Caesar caused violent uprisings by proud and patriotic Jews who refused to pay this tax. 
But those insurrections were squashed by the mighty Roman military, and all the people who participated in those uprisings were put to death swiftly without mercy. So this was the trap question. Because no matter how Jesus answered this question, Jesus would get into trouble. Here's the dilemma that Jesus faced with this crafty question. Now, if Jesus said to his uh, followers to pay this tax, then, he would, then they would consider Jesus to be a traitor to the cause of his people. Remember, the Jews at this time were expecting a Messiah, a Savior, who would liberate them from their Roman oppressors, not have them continue to live under the oppression and the rule of the Romans. So if Jesus told his followers to submit to the laws of the Roman government, if he told them to keep paying this tax, which represented their subjugation to Rome then all the people would turn against Jesus. He would lose his popularity amongst his followers, and they would stop listening to his words. And Jesus and his ministry would functionally be over, or so the religious leaders thought. But if Jesus told his followers not to pay the tax, then he would be guilty of subverting the Roman government. Then the religious leaders could haul Jesus before the Roman governor and accuse him of insurrection. And the one thing that Romans never, Romans never tolerated was any kind of rebellion against Rome. You see, a man who told people not to pay their taxes was telling people to defy the sovereignty and the rule of Rome. And that person would promptly be arrested and executed. So, Jesus seemed to be caught in this dilemma. On the one hand, if Jesus told the people to keep paying their taxes, then he was done as a popular hero. But if he told them not to pay their taxes, then he was a dead man. It was a heads I win and a tails you lose kind of situation for Jesus. And the religious leaders finally thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. Because he could give no right answer to this question. Or so they thought. So what would Jesus do? How would Jesus get out of this dilemma? Let's see how Jesus answered this question. Now, before answering this trap question, uh, Jesus asked to see a denarius. Apparently, someone had a denarius on them and handed it to Jesus. Now, here's a picture of a Roman denarius. It was a small silver coin, and it was equivalent to one day's wage for a working man in Judea. So it was like a $100 bill. Now, the image of Caesar was stamped on the coin, like the image of George Washington is stamped on an American quarter. And around the image of Caesar was this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. And this tribute to Caesar could only be paid with a denarius. But that wasn't a problem because Israel, being a part of the Roman Empire, was also part of the Roman economy. And everyone in the Roman economy had access to a denarius because it was the common currency of the land. And you could easily convert any other local currency into Roman currency. Now, after holding up and showing the crowd the denarius, Jesus answered their question by asking a question of his own. And he asked, whose likeness? An inscription does it have? Well, obviously, everyone could see that it was, it was the likeness or the image of Caesar on the coin. And so they said, Caesar's. And that prompted Jesus to utter one of the most famous, the most quoted statements that he has ever made. Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God 
the things that are God's. With this saying, Jesus acknowledged the legitimacy and the validity of the state and human government. This one sentence gives us the beginning of a Christian view of politics and religion. It's a foundational statement for the Christian way of looking at the issue of state and church and how Christians are to relate to their human governments. Now, when Jesus said to give the government what it deserves, like taxes, that meant that Jesus affirmed that the government has legitimate prerogatives. Jesus assumed the validity of, of the state and government even when that government was controlled by a man who thought he was God. Caesar had his authority because it was given to him by God. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, according to the Bible, the authority of human government is legitimate and valid. Listen, even when that government is broken and unjust, even when that government is led by deluded and foolish people. So, Jesus said to give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and then to give to God the things that belong to God. Now, I'm going to close my sermon by talking about what it means to give Caesar the things that belong to Caesar with some applications. But I want to get to the second part of the statement, which is give to God the things that belong to God. What does that mean? The denarius was created in the image of Caesar, therefore it belonged to Caesar. So let me ask you, what is created in the image of God? So that that belongs to God. We are. See, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we as human beings are created in the image of God. The likeness and the image of God have been stamped on every human being. And therefore, we belong to God. So we give our coins to Caesar. But we give our whole selves to God. And if you think that God just wants your money... You're wrong. You see, God wants way more than just your money. God wants all of you. God wants all that you have. He wants your whole and total self. You see, friends, your body belongs to God. And God wants you to use your eyes, your ears, and your hands to love and to serve your neighbors. And God wants you to use your body in ways that honor him. That includes how you use your body sexually. That includes what you do with your body as you take care of it. Your home belongs to God. And God wants you to use your homes not only for a place of rest for you and your family, but also a place for ministry and hospitality to others. Your time belongs to God. And God wants you to use your times, your time in ways that honor him. Uh, your, your work belongs to God. God wants you to do your work as if you're doing your work for him, as if you work for God. And that means you're to do your work with excellence and integrity even when no one's watching because God is watching and you work for God. And God wants you to do your work for his glory and for the good of your neighbors and for the common good and not just for your wages. And yes, your money belongs to God too. God wants you to hold on to your money loosely. God does not want you to love your money. God wants you to steward your money, not only to provide for yourself and for your family, but also for others. Do you understand, 
friends, that when God has given you your money, it's not just for you. It's not just for your family. It's for others too. God wants you to share what you have, to give, to care for the poor. God wants you to financially support the work of the church and the work of advancing the gospel. You see, God, when he gave you your money, gave it to you not to own, but to steward and to use your money the way God wants you to use your money. You see, friends, as Christians, we belong to God, our whole selves. And everything that we have, everything that has been given to us as a gift, everything that we've been entrusted with, all of it belongs to God. In fact, you can say we belong doubly to God. There's a story about a man, a music box maker, who built a beautiful music box. And it was the most beautiful and the most intricate music box that he had had ever made, and it played beautiful music. Now, this beautiful and precious music box belonged to this man because he made it, because he created it, and he loved and delighted in this music box. Every day he would open it up and listen to the sweet music that his precious music box made. But one day someone broke into a shop and stole his precious music box. And as you can imagine, it broke the owner's heart. But one day as he was walking down the street, he was passing by a pawn shop. And in the window, he saw his precious music box. Apparently the thief who had stolen it had sold it to the pawn shop. That man went into the pawn shop. The rightful owner of that music box went into the pawn shop, wanted it back. So what did he have to do? He pulled out his money and he purchased the music box that he had made. And that man now doubly owned that music box. First, it belonged to him because he created it. And second and more importantly, it belonged to him because he purchased it. Now this man doubly owned his music box and he doubly loved his music box. In a similar way, we belong doubly to God, don't we? First, we belong to God because he created us, because he created us in his likeness. And second, and more importantly, we belong to God because God also purchased us. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we were lost to God. But God purchased and redeemed us for himself with something far more costly than silver and gold. He purchased and redeemed us at the cost of the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, God never demands from us what he doesn't first give to us. God asks us to give all of ourselves to him because God first gave all of himself for us. You see, in Christ, God gave his whole self for us. In Christ, God gave his very life for us. In Christ, God gave all of himself for us so that we might belong to God again, so that we might know the joy of giving all of ourselves to God. You see, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you belong doubly to God. You belong to God not only because he created you, but also because he redeemed you and purchased you at the cost of his life. And because you belong doubly to God, you are now to give to God what belongs to him, and that's yourself, your body, your home, your time, your work, and your money, all of that belongs to God because you belong to God. And therefore, by the enabling grace of God, give your whole self and everything you have to God. 
And you will find that when you do that, you don't actually lose anything. You gain everything. Because the way that we can experience the satisfying joy of the purpose of our creation and redemption is to give our whole selves to God. That is the key to true joy and satisfaction in this life. So what? Let me close now with three practical applications for how we as Christians are to relate to human government. So what what are the ways that we give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar? I'm going to give us three applications. Here's the first. We are to pray for our government officials and leaders. Now, Jesus doesn't address this issue in our text today, but the New Testament clearly teaches us that we are to pray for our government officials and leaders. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 1 to 3, he says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. As Christians, we're called to pray for our government officials and leaders. So we're to pray for President Joe Biden, whether you voted for him or not. And we're to pray that God would give him wisdom to lead our country. We're to pray for Congress and ask God to give our senators and our representatives integrity in their political office. We're to pray for the members of the Supreme Court and ask God that they would be agents of justice. We're to pray for Governor uh, Ralph Northam and all the other state officials of Virginia and our local leaders. As the people of God, we're called to pray for our country so that true righteousness and true justice may prevail in our country for all people, regardless of race and or social economic class. Here's the second application. We are to be good citizens of our earthly country, even if our government is broken or poorly run. Jesus and the Apostle Paul commanded Christians to submit to the Roman government and to be good citizens in the Roman government, even though it was a government that persecuted Christians. That means that we're to submit to and to be good citizens of our government, no matter what we may think of it, whether we think it's run well or not. As Christians, we're called to be the very best citizens and we're to do our part to promote the common good and to serve and to protect our neighbors, especially the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. So what does it mean to be a good citizen? It means three things at least. First, being a good citizen means paying your taxes. Now this is the most obvious application of Jesus' teaching from our text today. Now what made this uh, teaching remarkable was Jesus was talking about the Roman Empire. Jesus was telling his disciples to pay their taxes to a government that oppressed them. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing, but when he said it, Nero was the emperor of Rome when Rome was persecuting Christians. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to those to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to him to whom honor is owed. And he was talking about Nero and the Roman government that oppressed and persecuted Christians. 
So as Christ followers, we have a duty to pay our taxes to our government, no matter how wisely or unwisely we think that the government will spend our tax money. Paying our taxes is an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Paying our taxes is an act of obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't try to get out of paying your taxes. Don't cheat on your taxes. That is direct disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, being a good citizen means obeying the laws of the land. You see, the government has legitimate claims on our behavior and our conduct. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says again, Let every person be subject, be subject to the governing authorities. You see, as Christ followers, we're not called just to obey the laws of God but we're also called to obey the laws of the land. As Christ followers, and now of course, there are exceptions, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but the main point is this. We're to obey and follow the laws of our government, the laws of our land, as long as those laws do not cause us to disobey God. So, what are some laws of our lands that we as Christians are called to obey? Let me give you some examples. Obviously, don't commit murder. Don't steal. Don't buy or sell or use illegal narcotics. Don't drink alcohol until you're 21 years of age. Obey all the traffic laws. If you're an employer, at least pay your employees minimum wage. And when our Governor Northam and the CDC gives us guidelines on how we as a community can ensure safety for the most amount of people uh, during this pandemic, respect those guidelines and follow those guidelines. Now, you may not like all the laws and policies and guidelines from our federal, state, and local governments. You may think they're silly or unnecessary. You may find them inconvenient and personally bothersome. But if they do not cause you to disobey God or violate the will of God as revealed in the Bible, then just obey them whether you personally like them or not. Let me say that again because this is really important. As long as the laws and policies and guidelines that are given to us by our local authorities do not cause us to disobey God or to violate our conscience or to violate the will of God as clearly revealed in Scripture, then we are to obey them. Even if you think it's inconvenient or unnecessary or silly, it is not up to you to decide that. We obey our local authorities. So we wear our masks because wearing a mask does not cause us to disobey God. And so we joyfully wear our masks. Third, being a good citizen involves participating in public life for the common good. As citizens of our state and government, we are called to serve our fellow citizens. And in a democratic society like us, like ours, this includes seriously our responsibility to vote. As Christians, we are to vote for candidates, laws, and policies according to our conscience and what we believe will best promote true justice and true righteousness in our society. Now listen, folks. As Christians, we may disagree over who the best candidate may be or what the best law may be or what the best policy may be as to what we think will promote true justice and righteousness and human flourishing. And it's okay if we disagree. But when we disagree... We must disagree with humility, love, and respect. We need to show the world that we can disagree civilly and respectfully and lovingly. Now more than ever, 
May the world see the church not divided and antagonistic against one another, but even when we disagree, we can do so in a Christ-honoring way. Participating in public life also means taking our other civic duties uh, responsibilities seriously, like the dreaded jury duty, right? As you faithfully and thoughtfully serve and do jury duty, what are you doing? You are helping your neighbors get justice. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your neighbor. Now, some Christians are called to serve God in the military and in law enforcement, and they are called to do that in Christ-honoring ways. Some Christians are called to hold public office and to serve as government officials, and they are to do that in Christ-honoring ways. So being a good citizen means paying our taxes, obeying the laws of the land, and participating in public life for the common good. And let me close with this. Lastly, here's the third application, and this is the most important. We are to pledge our ultimate allegiance to God And we're to be good citizens of our heavenly country while we live here on earth. You see, friends, as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of both heaven and earth at the very same time. But our citizenship in America is temporary and it's relative. But our citizenship in heaven is eternal and ultimate. Therefore, that means we're to pledge our relative allegiance to our earthly country, but we pledge our ultimate allegiance to our heavenly country. Practically, that means this. As citizens of the United States of America, we are to follow and obey all the laws of our nation, all the laws of our state, and all the laws of our local communities. But... When those laws and policies are contrary to the law of God, when obeying those laws and policies will cause us to disobey God, we cannot and we must not obey them. Our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and not to any earthly president or governor. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the local authorities commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Friends, that means that there may be times when we must disobey our government. If what our government asks us to do is unjust or immoral or somehow contrary to the revealed will of God in the Bible. You see, our first and ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and his kingdom. Listen, folks, I am a proud citizen of the United States of America. I love America. And I want to be a good citizen of the United States of America. And I want to be a good citizen of Virginia because this is where I live now. But I love being a citizen of heaven infinitely more. And it's far more important to me that I be a good citizen of heaven than I am and loyal to King Jesus than I am a citizen of this country. And listen, folks, because our allegiance to America is relative and not ultimate, That now gives us the freedom and the responsibility to speak out with a prophetic voice against the government when the government fails to live up to its God-ordained purposes, which is to administer justice and to promote the common good. And this requires both boldness and caution, doesn't it? First, it requires boldness. You see, when we see that laws and policies of our government are either unjust or immoral, we must have the boldness to speak out against it and seek to correct it. 
as the church, we have the responsibility to speak out with a prophetic voice against injustice and to work for justice so that the laws and the policies and the systems of our land, as much as possible, treat all human beings with the dignity and the respect that they deserve as image bearers of God. And this requires boldness. Because we will have to publicly say some things that are culturally unpopular. Whether it's on the issue of the sanctity of all of life from the womb to the tomb. Or on the issue of sexuality from a biblical perspective. Or on the issue of racial justice. Here's the bottom line. Where we believe that the government can do its job better, more justly, and more fairly then we are to work to improve our government and the law so that everyone, no matter their race, no matter their social economic class, can lead quiet and peaceful lives. Now, this involves voting for officials who will do what is just and right, voting for laws and policies that are fair and just and promote human flourishing for all people, not just for the majority, but for all people. And this can also involve, at times, peacefully pro protesting when the government fails to do what is right or acts unjustly. All of this takes boldness. At the same time, all of this takes a lot of caution. You see, we must be careful that we do not put our hope in political processes and outcomes, and we must be careful to remember that our mission as a church is not to enact social change. Now, if positive social change happens because of our witness, because of our works, then that's great, and we'll give God praise and thanks for that. But we declare the gospel, and we work for what is good, noble, just, and right, not to create heaven on earth, but to give this broken world the glimpse of the heaven that's coming. Our mission as a church is not only to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, but also to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like with our beautiful works of mercy, justice, and compassion. When we do our works of mercy and justice, our goal, listen, friends, our goal is not social change. Our goal is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that we will continue to do works of mercy and justice even if no social change ever happens because of it. We do our good works of justice and mercy to be faithful to Jesus, not to see results. And even if things go from bad to worse, we will not despair and we will not give up hope because our ultimate hope is in our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ and in his promise to return one day to restore this broken world. You see, one day Jesus will come again and when he does, he will make all things new and all things right. And on that day, we will finally get the world that we're all longing for, a world of love, Justice, righteousness, and peace. A world without sin, sorrow, sickness, or death. A world where everything and everyone are the way that they're supposed to be. So it, as I recap quickly, so how are we as Christ followers to relate to human government? First, we're to pray for our leaders. Second, we're to be good citizens in our country as we pay our taxes, obey the laws, and participate in public life for the common good. And third, and most importantly, 
we are to pledge our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus and live as citizens of heaven even as we live here on earth because being citizens of heaven ought to make us the best citizens on earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for your teaching uh, to us today. I pray that we would all uh, believe it and internalize it and by the help of your spirit, would you help us would you help us to live rightly in this life and to relate to human government the way you want us to as we remember our dual citizenship as citizens of, as citizens of both this nation and of citizens of heaven. And Lord Jesus, would you help us as we live out our identity as citizens of heaven, would you help us to be the very best citizens on earth. For your glory we ask this. Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond?